Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time of the week where we talk about science and skepticism. And so I want to start off tonight uh, pretty much as I always do, uh, just letting you know that you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page. You can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Um, Just as a note about the website, I actually have posted uh, my first story tonight as a essay on my website, and I'm hoping to get back to writing uh, random essays about different things. Uh, So if you're interested in reading things that I'm writing, uh, hopefully I will be able to say that more is coming soon. Now, um, I do actually want to touch on something that is kind of a something that's just happened. So I just want to kind of touch on this. Um, so people are reporting that the first death from a vaping linked lung disease has been reported by Illinois uh, health officials. And so uh, in case anyone is unclear, even though it seems very clear to me, uh, vaping is not particularly better for you than actually smoking cigarettes. Uh, Some of the things that are associated with cigarettes are gone from it, but it still is not good for you. And I don't quite understand how it became something seen as perfectly healthy. Um, And so just to let you know, Right now, there are people in uh, a bunch of states. The victims tend to range from between the ages of 17 and 38. uh, So it seems to be affecting younger people more. Um, But there have been, according to the CDC, as of Wednesday, there were 149 plus possible cases found in 15 states. And it's really just not anything that we can uh, figure out right now. And so uh, the severity of illness people are experiencing is alarming. And we must get the word out that using e-cigarettes and vaping can be dangerous, said Indiana Department of Public Health Director Ngozi Azike in a statement. We We requested a team from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention to help us investigate these cases, and they arrived in Illinois on Tuesday. And so, yeah, pretty much the only thing linking all of the people who have been involved in this is the fact that they all have been vaping. Um, And so an infectious outbreak has been ruled out because many of the uh, people didn't know each other. And, um, so yeah, it's definitely something to be worried about. It turns out that apparently some of them have been using, uh, vapable THC as well. And so that might be part of the problem. Um, but again, vaping is not good for you. (laughs) Um, it's just not, um, it's no, it's slightly better than smoking perhaps, but not by much. So, uh, please don't do it as a public health, uh, announcement. I would like to say, please don't vape. It also kind of makes you look ridiculous. Uh, not going to (laughs) lie. When I see vaping people vaping, I tend to roll my eyes pretty hard. Okay. So let's actually start 
tonight's actual show. So as advertised from last week, we are going to be talking about geology. And so I'm really excited to talk about this. I feel like I talked about this many years ago, but it's been many years. So I wanted to talk about this again. And I've sort of alluded to it on a couple of past uh, shows, which is kind of the story of how we figured out about plate tectonics. And so it starts off uh, in, and it again, it's something that I think that a lot of people are kind of familiar with, but not necessarily really about the details. Um, it's just a fascinating story. And one of the things I like about it is that there is an amazing woman planted directly in its center. So it actually starts back in 1926 when a German meteorologist named Alfred Wegener told a gathering at the American Association of Petroleum Geologists that he believed that the continents had once been locked together and then drifted apart from one another to the configuration that we see today. He was pretty much laughed out of the room. Uh, no one believed him. They thought that he was absolutely crazy, uh, that he was a total crackpot. It was just terrible. His colleagues assured him that there was no force that would be powerful enough to move continents. The dream of a great poet, opined the director of the Geological Survey of France. One tries to embrace it and finds that he has in his arms a little vapor or smoke. William Berryman Scott, then president of the American Philosophical Society, called it utter damn rot. The geologist Philip Lake suggested that Wegener is not seeking the truth. He is advocating a cause and is blind to every argument and fact that tells against it. Now, in their defense, there was that giant glaring problem at the time. No one had come up with or understood what kind of plausible mechanism there would be for how continents and all of the crust on earth could move around. Nobody understood yet about the interior of the earth and how there were convection currents and magma um, and all of those things sort of churning around underneath the earth and how that could actually affect the movement of the crust. Nobody knew about that yet. But there's also probably some other reasons why uh, he was rejected, unfortunately. For one thing, Wegener was German, uh, and this was post-World uh, War II America, where there was still um, a lot, sorry, post-World War I America, uh, where there was still a lot of animosity towards the Germans. Uh, and he was also a meteorologist rather than a geologist. And so, um, unfortunately, it's often a little bit hard for people in a field to take on the ideas from someone outside of the field. Uh, and so this kind of thing does happen in science. Um, and sometimes that person ends up actually being a crackpot. Um, so, you know, even though now we can say, oh, God, how could they have ever not thought this was a proper idea? That there are reasons. Now, Wigener unfortunately did suffer a lot of setbacks uh, 
he was denied a lot of uh, movement in his career because of this. Um, but he carried on and he actually died rather heroically. Uh, he was on an expedition in Greenland and he had taken with him uh, himself and a young man from um, Greenland had set out to deliver supplies to a team that had been facing starvation. Apparently they were stranded in the middle of winter in the middle of a basically expanse of desert, winter desert. Um, and so they apparently got there successfully, but on the way back, he actually died of a heart attack. Um, and so that was unfortunate, but um, apparently he had been continuing to go places and do things and had lived a really um, interesting and good life despite all of these setbacks. And so, of course, it fell to later researchers to find the missing mechanism and to restore the intellectual honor of Wegener. And so that mechanism was found initially beneath the waves. Now, I've mentioned before many an occasion that the oceans are fairly mysterious still. We've mapped a fraction of the ocean floor. Scientists estimate that only 10 to 15% has been mapped in detail. And of course, that's a small amount considering that the entire planet is covered 70% with oceans. Um, so that's a lot of places that we haven't mapped yet. Um, and just a shout out to uh, the Okeanos um, and the EV Nautilus uh, rovers that are out there. Um, both have uh, websites. Uh, EV Nautilus is actually um, is connected with Bob Ballard, who is very, very famous as an oceanographer. Uh, he's the one who discovered the Titanic and all sorts of amazing things. And I can't remember what he's doing now, but he's doing something spectacular again now. Um, but that is actually his outfit. And they are just doing amazing things. Um, I Sometimes I just watch the clips from that uh, from their dives on uh, YouTube as a just, it's just sort of a moment of just Zen happiness. And you see all sorts of crazy creatures, beautiful corals, everything. So I highly recommend um, the EV Nautilus, especially. Um, and then there's also the Okeanos Explorer, which I think is actually through NOAA. Um, but yeah, there's some great um, resources where you can actually watch people discovering brand new things in the ocean right now. Um, and I will uh, link to the, um, I'll link to the uh, YouTube page on uh, Facebook this afternoon, this evening. So let's talk about that amazing woman who figured out pretty much what was going on. Marie Tharp was born in 1920 in Michigan. Tharp became a geologist and a cartographer, and together with her research supervisor, Bruce Heason, uh, who was, by the way, four years her junior, she was the first to scientifically map the ocean floor, at least the uh, middle of the Atlantic. Now, as a child, she would join her father, who worked for the Bureau of Chemistry and Soil as he collected samples. So she got an early start in science. Uh, she began her career in the 1940s, and of course, that was a time when women were still not generally welcome in the field of geology. 
But of course, with the start of World War II, that ended up opening up a lot of access uh, for women to areas that they had once been not at all welcome in. So uh, while at the University of Ohio, Tharp was lucky enough to find a mentor who encouraged her to take up drafting. And so that was important because field work was still nonetheless largely unavailable to women, and so it would give her a skill to attract better job offers. Um, After Ohio, she went on to earn a degree in mathematics at the University of Michigan. In 1948, she moved to Columbia University where she met where she actually met Bruce Heason, and they began on two projects, one to locate downed World War II aircraft and the other to create a topographical map of the ocean floor. Now, it would be this mapping that actually would change the face of geology and earth sciences. Up until this era, most scientists assumed that the ocean floor was basically a featureless plain of mud, Um, there had been some exceptions, which we'll talk about in a second, but for the most part, people didn't really think about it as being geologically active or interesting at all. No serious mapping had been done and the technology just really wasn't there to do these large amounts of seafloor mapping until this period. And so the topography project actually became their principal endeavor. They worked on it from the 50s all the way into the 70s. And so what would happen is Heason would go out on research vessels and collect data. Now, most of this was sonar measurements. So uh, as you probably know, sonar devices send out sound waves, uh, pings, that bounce off of objects and are reflected back to a microphone setup that actually records them and based on how long it takes for the pings to come back, uh, then that is how tall something is. And so uh, basically what they did was the process was involved sending out pings at regular intervals, which would then be picked up by the microphone on the ship, and it was attached to a stylus, which would make marks on recording paper. And so there had recently been some improvements in the technology, and so the apparatus could make continuous readings. Now, Heason had to, of course, be the one to gather that raw data because, again, women were not allowed on ocean vessels at this time because the lab director considered them bad luck at sea. Not surprisingly, given the seeming ubiquity of superstitious seamen, Now, this actually was fine because it gave Tharp the ability to turn the data printed on 5,000-foot-long scrolls into systematic maps of the ocean floor. Tharp used her drafting skills to transform the scribbles using pen, ink, and rulers on sheets of white linen into actual pictorial representations of the seafloor. She used a technique called physiographic mapping, which uses light and texture instead of color to create her maps. She also integrated research data from other sources, including Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, uh, right here in Massachusetts, and from seismographs of underwater earthquakes. Tharp's maps revealed that the world's oceans 
was just as varied as that of the continents, with valleys, mountains, and volcanoes, and often these features were much larger and more dramatic than those found on land. Tharp stated that the work was made more exciting due to the fact that she had been working on what was essentially a blank canvas. Now, one must note that there were some inklings that there was something more out there, as I mentioned. In the 1870s, an expedition testing routes for the transatlantic telegraph cables had been shocked to discover a mountain range in the middle of the Atlantic. Tharp's maps showed for the first time exactly where the continental shelf began to rise out of the abyssal plain. And it was in 1952 that Tharp found that feature that so shocked the uh, early expeditions, a chain of mountains and volcanoes that runs north to south in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which we now call the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Importantly, she also found a depression, a deep notch near the crest of the ridge, uh, she, she noted, that ran the entire length of the ridge. Now, at first, she believed it was had to have been a mistake, and so she double and, and triple checked her work. She knew she'd found a rift valley under the ocean, and so that was just crazy. Um, and so she tried to explain it by comparing it to the rift valley in Africa, um, but she knew that it would be an incredibly hard thing to convince others of her findings. Plate tectonics and continental drift were still considered verboten topics, not to be talked about. And so when she showed Heisen, quote, he groaned and said, it cannot be. It looks too much like continental drift, uh, she wrote in a later letter. Bruce initially dismissed my interpretations as the profiles of the profiles as, quote unquote, girl talk. And so with the lab's reputation on the line, he's in reordered, ordered her to redo the maps. Now, Tharp went back to the data and start, started plotting again from scratch. And so in late 1952, as Tharp was working on the replotting of her map, Heisen took on another challenge, which meant he needed to create a map of his own. He was searching for safe places to plant transatlantic cables. By plotting earthquake epicenters in the ocean floor, he began to notice something strange. Most quakes occurred along a continuous line that sliced down the center of the Atlantic. When he compared his map to Tharp's newly replotted map, he realized that this line corresponded almost exactly with Tharp's Rift Valley. <sighs> they their work had revealed 40,000 miles of underwater ridge that ran throughout the globe. In 1957, Heisen took some of the findings to the public. Tharp would later recall that the reactions, quote, ranged from amazement to skepticism to scorn. One of those who reacted with scorn was the venerable oceanographer Jacques Cousteau. Cousteau began filming the Atlantic Ocean's floor and was determined to prove Tharp's theory wrong. He tacked her map to the wall in the ship's mess hall, in fact. Of course, once Cousteau reached the ridge, his footage proved Tharp's theory without a doubt. He was so astonished, he ordered the ship to turn around and to return to film again. 
In 1959, Cousteau screened the video at the International Oceanographic Conference. The audience gasped and shouted for an encore, but the theory, but the theory was still to be accepted. In 1959, Heesen presented a paper endorsing the theory of the expanding Earth. This posited that the continents were moving as the planet expanded. Other hypotheses joined in the fray. Tharp stayed out of it. She preferred to continue with her work. She consented to present a paper only once, on the condition that a male colleague do all of the talking. There's truth to the old cliche that a picture is worth a thousand words, and that seeing is believing, she wrote. I was so busy making maps, maps that I let them argue. I figured I'd show them a picture of where the Rift Valley was and where it pulled apart. And so, eventually, by the early 60s, Wegener's once radical view came to be accepted by the majority of geologists and oceanographers. Tharp compared the collective eye-opening to the Copernican Revolution. Scientists and the general public, she wrote, got their first relatively realistic image of a vast part of the planet that they could never see. And in 1961, she finally managed to see it for herself. He's an arranged for her to join a research cruise, even though women were still not welcomed. They issued their first complete map of the North Atlantic in 1957. This was followed by maps of the South Atlantic and Indian Oceans in the 1960s. Heezen died in 1977. That same year, Tharp published a comprehensive map of the entire ocean called the World Ocean Floor Map. In 1997, freed from Heezen's shadow, Tharp received double honors from the Library of Congress. She was named one of the four greatest cartographers of the 20th century and featured and one of her maps was featured in the oceans of the ocean was featured in their 100th anniversary of the Geography and Map Division. Her map hung in the company of the original rough draft of the Declaration of Independence and the pages from Lewis and, Dra and Clark's journals. When she saw it, she cried. Establishing the Rift Valley and the Mid-Ocean Ridge that went all the way around the world for 40,000 miles, that was something important, she wrote. You could only do that once. You can't find anything bigger than that, at least on this planet. <laughs> uh, she continued with her work uh, at Columbia University until her death in August of, of 2006. Now, many other women have followed in her footsteps to make incredibly important contributions to geology, despite all of the early pushback. And that includes Tanya Atwater, who also started uh, at a time when women were not particularly uh, welcome, but she is now a professor emerita at UC Santa Barbara. And she was, a re she was recently awarded the Penrose Medal by the Geological Society of America. She has been called by many the mother of plate tectonics for her extensive research, especially in the western portion of North America, and in particular the San Andreas Fault System. But she also directly followed in Tharp's footsteps by becoming an expert in ocean tectonics. According to the GSA, she, quote, brought understanding to processes at mid-ocean ridges and more importantly showed how the quantitative elegance and simplicity of plate tectonics could be brought to continents to understand their history with numbers, not just qualitative analogies. 
And so during her career, she participated in 12 dives to the deep ocean floor in the submersible submersible Alvin, uh, which I think Bob Ballard designed, if I'm remembering right. Uh, she was also a trailblazer in this because, again, as we've discussed, women were discouraged from participating in ocean field work. She retired in 2007, but continues to lecture and teach workshops and to lead field trips. The medal will be awarded on September 22nd during the annual GSA award ceremony. So yes, amazing women doing amazing work. All right, we are going to take a break for some PSAs and some show promos, and then we're going to talk, come back and talk a little bit about some new stories about uh, geology. So hang on for just a second. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. What did they just say? If you often find yourself asking that, you may benefit from the new audio-enhancing technology available at the Forbes Library in Northampton. Designed to work with or without a hearing aid, the new and improved audio-visual systems in our meeting rooms, along with countertop loop systems at our service desks, are some of the new technology the library now has. With federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. You'll now find hearing the librarian and guest lecturers a whole lot easier. Call 413-587-1017 or email info at ForbesLibrary.org to find out more. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yousef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. <laughs> Brought to you by the Ad Council. Aquí habla Marta Martínez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. Mm -hmm. 
Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. The Lilly Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lilly Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I meet with our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. And we are back. So we've talked a little bit about the history of plate tectonics. And so now we are going to talk about some uh, more recent uh, stories about plate tectonics. And so, of course, one of the big questions uh, that is still kind of up in the air is when did plate tectonics begin to affect the surface of the Earth? So, of course, at some point, the Earth's surface cooled enough to solidify uh, once the actual Earth had formed, but it didn't start with these convection currents and actual movement of the plates until some time after that. And so the estimates have ranged between one and four billion years ago, and that's a big, that's a big range. <laughs> uh, a new study by an international team of researchers now suggests it most likely began more than 3.5 billion years ago. Plate tectonics may be the main process on Earth that makes it different from other planets in our solar system, and that may be quite significant for the study of life on Earth, said Alexander Sobolev, lead author of the paper and a member of the Russian Academy of Sciences and a doctor of geological and mineralogical sciences who teaches in both France and Russia. <laughs> um they base their findings on a tiny drop of seawater in a blob of magma that was found in a bubble smaller than the width of a human hair uh, inside of a rock found in South Africa. The microscopic bead of cooled magma had lain dormant for more than 3.3 billion years inside a crystal of olivine, which protected it from being altered and made it a time capsule from the remote past when the Earth was still becoming what we know it as today. In turn, the olivine crystal is no larger than a grain of sand and was found in a coamatite rock. These rocks are found near and named after the Kamadi River in South Africa, 
And this particular uh, formation is called the Barbiton Greenstone Belt. And so they were formed by extremely hot plumes of magma that erupted from the Earth's mantle onto the surface of the Earth during the Archean period, which is 2.5 to 4 billion years ago. They're actually prized by researchers because they preserve elements of the Earth's early mantle uh, and give clues to its conditions and composition. Now, the rocks themselves have been greatly transformed since they formed on the surface billions of years ago, but they have preserved inclusions of that magmatic mineral olivine, and so that's where the samples are found. So olivine is actually a, um, it's a mineral that is created in, um, in magma eruptions, and so it's usually found near places where either there have been lava flows or um, where there are ancient um, volcanoes. The team previously explored the Abitibi Greenstone Belt in Canada, and that formed around 2.7 billion years ago, again, in order to find these olivine inclusions. Now, in order to study the tiny sample, Sobolev and his team heated the olivine to over 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit and rapidly cooled them in ice water to form a sample of glassy magma, which they were then able to analyze to find the chemical makeup and determine its origin. They found that it matched the signature of subducted ocean oceanic crust with a high concentration of water and chlorine and low levels of deuterium, which is a heavy isotope of hydrogen. So this suggests that the magma was originally part of an ancient ocean seafloor. If that is the case, it means a lot, Sobolev said. It means that seawater altered crust from the surface went down into the mantle nearly 3.3% billion years ago. Because all of these processes are slow, you can expect that from the point that from the point from when this source went down to the point where it reached the surface again, it took at least 100 to 200 million years. That means this process started within the first billion years of Earth's histories. History. Uh, so one of the amazing things about Uh, plate tectonics is that it actually might have something to do with why there's life here on earth. Plate tectonics constantly recycle the planet's matter and without it, the planet would look like Mars, said geoscientist Alan Wilson from the Witts University in South Africa. Our research showing that plate tectonics started 3.3 billion years ago now coincides with the period that life started on Earth. It tells us where the planet came from and how it evolved. Now, of course, there's always some level of variation in terms of what you can discover from how things were created under different chemical pressures pressure itself uh, and other geological processes. So we can't say for sure that the process began at any one time. We can't say at 3.3 billion years ago on a Tuesday in September is when plate tectonics started. There's obviously a uh, error bar range for these kinds of things, but the findings are very intriguing and they suggest that water from the ocean was reaching subduction zones and thus beginning the cycle of convection that creates the movement of the planets 
earlier than previously thought. And so, um, of course, that's basically how all of this works is that that mid-Atlantic Ridge is where new, uh, new crust is being created. So there is lava um, or magma turns into lava there, cools as it hits the ocean uh, water, and you have that ridge building up and it spreads. And then in other places, you have plates which are in subduction zones. So in those places, one, one plate is going underneath another one. And so you kind of have this conveyor belt over the whole of the uh, earth where you have spreading and then subduction going on. And so it just continues to recycle. The material flows around in the mantle and then gets back into the cycle of uh, movement in the crust or on the crust um, as time goes on. Now, of course, one of the main components of plate tectonics is those plates. So um, you have the giant plates, there's continental plates, and then there's smaller plates in the ocean, and then there's ocean plates. Um, and so one of those ocean plates uh, might actually be in the last stages of its existence. Uh, of course, that's on the sort of millions of years scale, uh, not it's not going away tomorrow. <laughs> uh, everything here is on a geological timescale, which is, of course, very slow. So the Juan de Fuca plate stretches approximately 600 miles down the northern Pacific coast from Vancouver Island to Cape Mendocino in California. And researchers suspect it has a large gash or hole in it. Now, the gash has been theorized for some time, but a new survey published in Geophysical Research Letters suggests that it is definitely there. The hole may trigger coastal earthquakes and explain the origin of volcanoes in Oregon. Where other people have debated whether or not it was there, we can pretty confidently say it's real. Study lead researcher William Hawley, a doctoral student in the Earth and Planetary Science Department at UC Berkeley, uh, noted, he explained that no part of it is above the water. It's a total oceanic plate and thus requires surveying via research vessels. The plate is subducting uh, or diving beneath the North American plate. And again, it may one day disappear. And so in order to study the plate, researchers sent out boats between 2011 and 2015 to drop ocean bottom seismometers along different parts of the Juan de Fuca plate. De Fuca, excuse me. And so the sensors collected seismic data from earthquakes all over the um, globe for a year. And so when they'd collected a year's worth of data, the seismometers were recovered and their data loaded into a database, which allowed the researchers to create a tomography of the plate. So basically they built up a complete image of the layout of the plate. Now they were able to do this by interpreting how those seismic waves traveled through the plate, revealing the plate's composition and temperature variations. They found a region under central Oregon, which showed a gap in high velocity seismic waves, which they interpreted to be the hole or gash. 
Holly and study co-researcher Richard Allen, who is director of the Berkeley Seismological Laboratory, suggest that the plate was most likely formed at two overlapping ridge segments, which caused a weakened zone to develop along the seam of these ridges. As the plate is pushed under the continental plate, the seam is unzipping from the bottom up and creating the uh, gash or hole. Now, they estimate that the hole is between 155 and 60 miles below the surface. The gap, which narrows as it gets closer to the surface, is around 120 miles wide. The researchers think that material is being pushed up through the tear, which may have been the origin of Central Oregon's high lava plains around 17 million years ago. In fact, this finding fits well with much that is known of the local geology. The story links the hole in the tomography with this known weak zone in a plate and with a series of volcanic centers in Oregon and a series of earthquakes and faults off the coast of Northern California, Holly said. The researchers suggest that if the hole continues to widen, then the plate will eventually fragment with the pieces attaching themselves to the nearest plate. That is pretty cool because it is sort of geology in uh, action where you can really see the sort of huge forces involved here and you can tell how things are being pulled apart and how that affects that you know it seems really hard to understand how uh, you know huge these forces are but it's pretty incredible I mean you're just pulling apart the crust of the earth Um, so that is very cool. Let's move on now to astrogeology. The Japanese spaceship Hayabusa 2 dropped a lander towards the surface of the asteroid Ryugu from 135 feet above the surface back in October of 2018. The lander is called Mascot, and it hit a boulder, bounced, and then tumbled 55 feet to end up in a hole upside down. It managed to flip itself over, though, and got some amazing shots of the crater during the 17 hours of operational time it had before the batteries ran out. The surface looks a lot like meteorites on Earth called carbonaceous chondrites. And so that's actually pretty cool. What we have from these images is really knowing how the rocks and material is distributed on the surface of this asteroid, what the weathering history of this stuff is, and the geologic context. Ralph Jaumann, the study's first author author from the German Aerospace Center, told Gizmodo, it's the first information of this kind of material in its original environment. Now, one of the most surprising finds is that there is no dust on this object, on the whole asteroid. It's just crumbly and smooth rocks. So there's crumbly rocks, there's smooth rocks, but there's no, there's absolutely no uh, dust whatsoever. Some of the rocks look like they have lighter colored inclusions in them. Some of the inclusions are actually bluish or reddish, which is really exciting to the researchers because it suggests that this asteroid is made up of of some of the same stuff as those carbonaceous chondrites. And so it would be really cool if it turns out that it is one of these, it is the same exact kind of thing that turns into these carbonaceous chondrites. This means that, again, what we're seeing 
could very well be the first example of the space-bound version of what eventually crashes to Earth. Now, there are examples of these carbonaceous chondrites all over the world. Um, They are found, these meteorites are found in collections all over the world. But there are still mysteries here. So um, mysteries other than where is the dust, because that's super weird. Um, And so there are actually several kinds of carbonaceous chondrites. And so it will be really interesting to see what the data is about the inclusions, which would help researchers determine whether it matches one of the chondrites that they actually have in a collection somewhere on Earth, or if it's still yet another form of material. And so the goal of Hayabusa 2 is to bring back actual samples from the asteroid, which is exciting because it may very well have material from when the solar system was just forming. Now, the craft is due back on Earth late next year. Not to be outdone, NASA's Curiosity rover, on the other hand, has found a beautiful and complicated rock on the surface of Mars. The team is calling it Strathden. It is a boulder-sized rock comprised of dozens of sedimentary layers. It suggests that the area is more geologically complex than was previously suspected. The rock was found by Curiosity as it explores the, quote, clay-bearing unit within Gale Crater on the slope of Mount Sharp, which would have once featured lakes and streams. And so those would have deposited this clay mineral, uh, these clay minerals in this area. Now, the hope is to understand more about the planet's ancient past when water and maybe even life would have spread over the surface. The architecture of the rock suggests that either wind or flowing water or a combination of the two worked to shape this region with distinctive features. We're seeing an evolution in the ancient lake environment recorded in these rocks, said Caltex Valerie Fox, a co-lead investigator for Curiosity's clay unit campaign. Um, It wasn't just a static lake. It's helping us move from a simplistic view of Mars going from wet to dry. Instead of a linear process, the history of water was more complicated. And so, of course, that makes sense because it really doesn't make sense that it would just be this sort of uh, easy process of just water moving and then just forming these sorts of, uh, you know, lake beds that are full of clays. Like if there was, we think at some point, a much more uh, dynamic atmosphere and things like that on Mars, then it makes sense that you would have this more complicated uh, geology. And so the first picture of the rock was taken on July 9th using the quote-unquote mast cam. Uh, And then the second picture was taken the next day with the Mars hand lens imager, which is attached to the rover's arm and was taken at a distance of around four inches away. So that first one kind of shows the whole thing and it's beautiful, uh, sort of multi-layered gorgeousness. And then the next one, it's much closer up so you can see those individual layers very clearly. Now, of course, I'm totally someone who loves rocks. Um, I collect them pretty much as many places as I can. Uh, And so I just was 
totally in love with this rock as soon as I saw it. Um, it was just really beautiful. And um, I mean, it's it's brown because pretty much everything on uh, Mars is sort of brown or rusty uh, red. So it's not exactly the most beautiful rock in that respect, but it has all of these beautiful layers. It looks kind of like a huge stack of uh, fossilized pancakes um, made by someone who didn't really know how to make a pancake because it's, it's uh, spread out. It's not just... Um, circular, but it's very cool. And um, yeah, it'd be very cool to have that in my collection. Of course, you know, it is on Mars <laughs> and it is boulder sized uh, in the end. So probably you'd have to just take a little bit off of it. And thinking of that, uh, NASA actually does have its own mission to bring back samples from an asteroid. So it's not just uh, the Japanese who are working on that. Earlier this month, NASA announced four finalists for the spot on the asteroid Bennu that could be sampled by the Origins Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification Security Regolith Explorer or OSIRIS-REx spacecraft. Now, since arriving at the asteroid in December of 2018, the spacecraft has mapped the entirety of this bumpy asteroid in order to find the safest place to collect a sample. And so a primary and secondary target will be decided this coming December. Now, the site selection was delayed because the NASA team underestimated the amount of rugged terrain on the asteroid's surface. They initially thought there would be large, quote-unquote, ponds of fine-grained material. They, so what they need to do now is to find an area with some sort of fine-grained material, uh, maybe slightly bigger than what they originally thought, but still, it needs to be less than an inch in diameter in order for the spacecraft's sampling mechanism to actually be able to recover it. We knew that Bennu would surprise us, so we came prepared for whatever we might find, said Dante Loretta, a Cyrus Rex principal investigator at the University of Arizona in Tucson. As with any mission of exploration, dealing with the unknown requires flexibility, resources, and ingenuity. The OSIRIS-REx team has demonstrated these essential traits for overcoming the unexpected throughout the Bennu encounter. Now, luckily, NASA built in more than 300 days of extra time in order to deal with such surprises. NASA has definitely been being very good about its ability to sort of uh, time manage these things. So, you know, we have all these rovers who have lasted much longer than they were meant to. And, you know, they've definitely learned from all of their previous mistakes. They're definitely one of those... Uh, rare uh, associations, uh, <laughs> administrations, rare people <laughs> who have actually learned from their previous mistakes and have really uh, worked on missions that are feasible. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of extra days in case something goes wrong. <laughs> so two major changes needed to be made to adapt to the boulder-studded surface of Bennu. Originally, they hoped to find a site with a radius of 82 feet that was free from boulders. Unfortunately, there is pretty much literally nowhere on Bennu where that is the case. So they have had to readjust this to a site between 16 and 33 feet. 
They have also had to adjust the spacecraft's operational capabilities in order to make sure it can maneuver in this smaller target window. So they've tightened the navigational requirements to guide the spacecraft to the surface and have developed a new sampling technique called bullseye tag, which will use images taken from the surface to help navigate the spacecraft to the surface. And so basically they've just been making sure that everything is going to work out properly and they think they're pretty set. Although OSIRIS-REx was designed to collect a sample from an asteroid with a beach-like area, the extraordinary in-flight performance to date demonstrates that we will be able to meet the challenge that the rugged surface of Bennu presents, said Rich Burns, OSIRIS-REx project manager at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. That extraordinary performance encompasses not only the spacecraft and instruments, but also the team who continues to meet every challenge that Bennu throws at us. And so the four sites that are all are very uh, different from one another. They are actually named after birds native to Egypt, Nightingale, Kingfisher, Osprey, and Sandpiper. And so this is in alignment with the two different naming conventions that are associated with the mission. So uh, the first is, of course, Egyptian deities, and that is the spacecraft and the asteroid name. So both Osiris and Bennu are Egyptian deities, and the other naming convention are mythological birds. And so those are being used for features on the surface of the asteroid. So combining that was Egyptian birds. <laughs> so sample collection is scheduled currently for the second half of 2020, and a re-entry date for the spacecraft has been scheduled for September 24th, 2023. So hopefully we will get some amazing things coming back to us from space. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Please do stay tuned for Civil Politics. And I will be back next week with more science and maybe some skepticism. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of faded a little bit because there is really in a lot of really interesting science that I always want to talk about. But whenever there's something in particular that I think needs to be talked about, I definitely will try and do that. All right. Have a good night and I will see you next week. This show is a member of the Planetside Productions Network. Find out more at planetside.pro. Our theme song is Widgeon by the artist Bird Boy. Find more of his music at smarturl.it forward slash birdboy.